Hey there everyone, Jacob Austin here, owner of QS.Zone, and welcome to episode 5 of the Subcontractors Blueprint, the show where subcontractors will learn how to ensure profitability, improve cash flow and grow their business. Today, episode 5 is going to cover payments. Cash flow is critical for running a successful business, and some of the construction industry's payment terms are absolutely unfriendly to cash flow. We've got super long payment terms and we've also got this problem of late payment that really is a blot on the industry as a whole. A few years ago, a government report found that many people in the construction industry thought that late payment and non-payment is pretty much a norm. And more recently than that, earlier this year, Construction News released an article stating that more than half of all invoices sent to construction firms were paid late across 2022. The actual number was 52.9%. 52.9% of invoices paid late. And that was charting more than 100 million invoices. So we're talking nearly 53 million invoices paid late. That's a joke. Cash flow is important for any size of a business, but particularly for small businesses, because they're relying really on a steady stream of income to make sure expenses and operations can be maintained. When a payment from a customer is delayed or not received at all, it's financial strain straight away. And worryingly, it has a trickle-down effect of then possibly being unable to meet financial obligations of their own. So a late payment right at the start of the chain can filter through to the contractor down to the subcontractor, then the subcontractor down to their materials suppliers. And it's no wonder really that the industry gets so many late payments. But it really does have to change. Now I certainly can't claim to be lily white and I've never paid anybody late. But I always do my absolute best to make sure that myself and my team make their payments on time. And I always deliver the same message on this. It's bad enough that you have to have arguments with supply chain about the valuation of changes, whether something is a change or not at all. And there are difficult conversations to be had on a daily basis on those two issues. So don't add late payment to the mix. Don't make that be something you can be criticised about. Because if you can't pay people on time, where's the incentive to give keen prices? Where's any sense that we're doing right by the supply chain? And at the end of the day, most of the payment issues are just a matter of priority. And it's sadly a case of doing the wrong things at the wrong time. Because to make a payment, you've got to do the exact same amount of work to make the payment on late payment terms as you have to get the payment out the door on time. All the difference is a decision as to when you start doing it. So have some discipline and make those right decisions at the right time and get it done. There's often situations where the person issuing the payment doesn't agree with the valuation of the work and the person accepting the payment receives a downrated valuation or they receive less money than they initially requested. It's really common in the industry and quite a lot of the time it's down to timing really. We always have this situation where the contractor asks for the application, 
what, five days in advance of the month end and you've got to forecast a week to be able to get to the valuation date. It's either that or you accept that every month you're going to be a week short in progress so that you can get your valuation submitted. And it only takes half a day of bad weather, a little bit of missing materials, someone to phone in sick, any of these genuine things that might happen in the three or four or five days in between you forecasting and then the cutoff date for the valuation. And then you've got a pretty genuine situation where you've said one thing and the contractor said another thing. You weren't wrong when you submitted and perhaps the contractor's right now. You also get the discrepancies over variations and the likes. But you can always have the sort of moral high ground and the moral argument of, look, you aren't paying me what I asked for. The least you can do is pay me on time. The payment terms are bad enough as they are. And in the years that I've worked in the industry, I've seen some different approaches to payment terms, to cash retention, and what the drivers of the business are. During my time at Kia, the main thrust was retaining cash for as long as possible. And luckily, I had the pleasure of working on some of the framework projects whilst I was there where payment terms were quite short and they were stipulated as quite short by the framework. So I wasn't always having to adhere with this strategy of put all your suppliers on the longest possible payment terms. I never really bought into it, never really understood it. My previous boss at a prior organisation had taken some criticism from a commercial director over putting subcontractors on short payment terms. Because their perception was that the cash flow situation would be dire and that we'd be in negative cash all the while. And it just wasn't the case. We worked hard to get the best deal and the best deal quite often revolved around giving better payment terms to obtain a discount. And the philosophy was always, you might get to keep the cash for a little bit longer on longer payment terms, but eventually you have to pay it. Whereas a discount, you get to keep. And when you're making 25 5%, 7.5% 7 on each package that you're placing because you're able to have that flex and negotiate a, a better discount for better payment terms, you're making money all over the place. Your supply chain are happy because they're getting their earnings after a shorter period of time. And I think, and I can't prove it, that you get a better cross-section of the supply chain wanting to work for you because they're willing to with shorter terms. Whereas on the flip side, fewer contractors are willing to work on the 60 days, 75 days, 90 days, 120 days I've seen here and there. And I always think some of these quantity surveyors out there are becoming more accountants than quantity surveyors because for me, it's all about making money. I always wanted to see the best return on my project and feel like I was getting the best result and I was doing whatever I needed to do to get that result. But I always always feel like some of the negotiation was a little bit hamstrung by inability to offer better terms. And what I can say to you is there are places out there that will offer better than 60 day terms, better than 45 day terms. And if having the cash in your bank account means something to you, then 
Be selective over who you're working with. Work for the people in the marketplace who are fair payers, if you can find them. So whilst we're speaking about payment terms, ideally these ought to be agreed prior to the start of a contract, but it isn't always the case, and really it should be. So should you find yourself in a situation where there aren't any agreed terms, the Construction Act effectively wades in and sets them for you. And by default, there are provisions in the Construction Act which guarantee regular stage payments or the right to submit a proportional valuation for works complete. And it actually says that you have the right to agree whatever periods or whatever intervals between the two parties that you like. And that it is a must for any contract which is going to be 45 days in length or longer. So there should be no situation where two, three months in, you haven't been able to obtain a payment. Okay, so four things to be aware of in relation to payments are firstly, payment dates. Secondly, breakdown of the contract sum. Thirdly, retentions. And finally, final account procedures. So payment dates. Your contract should contain a schedule of payment dates, or at the least, a description determining when the valuation date falls due. So you'll either have a long table with date, 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 date in month after month order, or you might have a paragraph that says something to the effect of the valuation date for each month will be the penultimate day of the month. So that starts the process. The next thing that you have is a period before the payment becomes due. And you're adding that to the specified date to get to the due date. So the due date is the date when the contract says the payment becomes due. It's not necessarily the date that the payment will be made. Then what you'll see is, is a further period to add to that date, which determines when the final date for payment will be. So to calculate when you're going to receive the payment, you need to add those two periods together onto the valuation date. And that will typically look like 28 days plus seven days. And that would sit at 35 days overall payment terms. So the due date is used to confirm the date when the payment notice is required to be issued. And by law, that has to be within five days of the due date. So once the payment falls due, the contractor's got five days to tell you how much he's going to pay you and give you his valuation of the work. There should also be a statement to say when a payless notice is able to be issued by the contractor. Item number two, the breakdown of the contract sum or the subcontract sum. So there should always be a subcontract sum analysis of some fashion. Whether this is a lump sum with proportional splits for various different bits of work, a schedule of works, a priced activity schedule, or even a full bill of quantities reflecting a detailed measure of each bit of work you're going to carry out. It's really important to always refer to that within your application. And the best way is to get your contractor to send you in Excel form a copy of the subcontract sum analysis or the bill of quantities 
And all you basically have to do to set up an application is add a percentage or quantity complete column and a further column to total up. All you then have to do is total it up, deduct some retention and your previous payment and you've got a pretty crude application for payment sorted out in a matter of minutes. We'll discuss applications for payment in a lot more detail on another day. But what I'm telling you here is there should always be a breakdown of the contract sum and this is there really to help you and the contractor to agree how much money the work that you have finished is worth. So using that tool to then submit your application is the most straightforward and collaborative way to assess the payment in a way that both you and the contractor can understand and agree. Retentions. So the retention percentage must be specified in the contract and it's commonly a percentage somewhere in the region of one and a half up to five percent. Generally there's a clause in place to reflect that half of that retention will become payable when you've finished your works or when you've achieved practical completion. Then the remainder is held until a defects certificate is issued by the contractor. We'll look at a few pointers for recovering retentions in a mo. Final account procedures. So the contract should set out a clear procedure for agreeing the final account. And that should mean a time scale and a quick reference list of the items which will build it up. And the point of that is to effectively draw the contract to a close on a financial basis. And it protects each of the parties from any ongoing effects of claims and the likes and say for any defects that might arise you're able to effectively rely on the valuation of the work safe in the knowledge that there's no further liability there all of these elements should be defined in your contract and you want to review those and get to understand them and i would recommend putting a simple crib sheet together for each contract so that you can understand on one page when the valuation dates are, how long after the valuation date you're going to get your money, what retention is going to be held, and you can add to that the date that you finish the works at the end of the job, so that you can then chase up the final release of retention at the right time. Right, so let's go back and talk about retention in a little bit more detail. So the purpose of this is really there to guarantee performance and to guarantee that little niggles, little defects that are too small to make a meaningful deduction or adjustment for are picked up during the course of a job and remedied prior to practical completion being achieved. They are a bugbear of the whole industry really and there's a definite feeling that if clients were able to form more long-term relationships with the contractors that they work with in a similar fashion to other manufacturing type industries that retentions wouldn't really be necessary because there's an ongoing relationship there's a promise of future work and there's a sort of a carrot to dangle if you like that yeah i'm going to pay you in full for what you've done but you won't get the next job if you're not performing or you're not finishing off the small details that will need putting right before the end of the job or after the end of the job and within the defect liability period and subcontractors i know have this feeling that oh it's the contractor holding on to the retention they want to keep all the money and they're going to bank it 
it's never going to be seen again. But I can tell you that just isn't the case. The contractor doesn't want retention to be held off of them in any way, shape or form in the same way that you wouldn't. And main contractors tend to run on a fairly small margin. So we're talking somewhere between one and a half and two percent. And when you think that a typical retention might be three percent or it might be five percent, that's in effect all of the net profit for a project in one minute percentage adjustment. So basically, if the contractor doesn't hold that retention from you, they don't make any money. Well, they certainly don't make any until the contract is all tied up and done and the defects are remedied. So the whole thing with retention is it starts at the top and it trickles out from the main contract into the subcontract and potentially even into sub-subcontracts. And what would be ideal is we get into a position where clients are more willing to accept contracts with no retention. Several client frameworks already stipulate that. So that's something you can watch out for. If you know you're working on a job which is part of a framework and you can get your hands on the main contract, which you should be able to see those conditions as part of your inquiry, those same conditions should be reflected downstream to you. So those will end up being sort of preferable jobs for you to work on. And they rely on more trust to complete things properly and at the right time. But there is a bit of a pitfall because when you have a retention in place, you've got a situation where there's always a little bit of a fund for if things go slightly wrong. And as soon as that fund gets taken away, the onus becomes a little bit harsher, if you like, for the contractor and the client to spot defects and adjust payments accordingly for them. So what you end up with is you might not have retention, but you might have these spot adjustments for defects that have been found. So there's a bit of an element of what's actually worse. One useful remedy for all of that would be the use of retention bonds, particularly if the client is willing to accept that from the contractor and then cascade the same arrangements all the way down the supply chain. So the steps that I would recommend that you take to get your hands on your retention money at the right time. Right at the outset in the contract, you want to agree a standalone date by which time retention will be released. And when I say standalone, what I mean is it's not linked to the main contract. It's actually illegal for the contractor to link the retention release back to the date in the main contract. So that's one of the provisions of the Construction Act that can work in your favour. So make sure you bear that in mind when you're attending your pre-order meeting. Another thing you could do is agree some sections. Particularly if this is a long-winded job, you don't want to be there for five years waiting for your retention release on the whole job single hit particularly if you're aware that the contractor has got the same upstream i.e 10 sections of work which are staggered six months apart across the course of the job and that will mean that once you've finished a little section of work you can apply for the retention for that particular section and then in 12 months time you can apply for the further section of retention or the second half of that same retention Try and negotiate a retention cap if you've got a repeat trading situation. And what you want to do here is try and limit your exposure or your risk, if you like, to one business. So the amount of subcontractors that would have been linked back at some way to Carillion when they disappeared and lost hundreds of thousands in retention. 
A simple cap across projects in a regional office would have prevented that. And essentially what you want to be doing is trying to talk some sense around the situation and saying, look, I've worked for you for 10 years, five years, two years, whatever. We've done X amount of business with each other. You've got so many thousand pounds in retention on me across all of these schemes that we've done together. And really all you need is a token gesture of 20 grand or whatever seems reasonable to keep my attention and keep me coming back to fix defects that might arise. And let's face it, we're not in business because we build plenty of defects in the first place. We've had repeat work because we know how to deliver the quality that we need and we finish the job properly. The contractor's willingness to enter into that kind of agreement will be up and down depending on whether, as we've mentioned earlier, they might have significant cash retentions held against them. And this might just be a way of essentially retaining some profitability. But it's worth an ask, it's worth a try. And particularly if you're in favour with the contractor, absolutely. Ask the question. Right, so once your retention becomes due, you want to clearly identify it in your application for payment. And what you also will do is send an application for payment for the final retention after you've made good any defects and the likes. You want to keep a record of any correspondence with the contractor you're working for and records of any attempts to make contact if you're unable to get any communication back. And sometimes there's this issue with the industry because there is quite a lot of churn between different contractors of staff. So the contractor or the QS or whoever it is, their representative that you're working for might not be around and you're bouncing emails around trying to get hold of somebody who can do the job, release you the money. I recommend in this instance, if you've got that kind of situation, you contact other people who might have been involved in the job and ask to refer on your application or you simply get hold of the company's website, search out the nearest local office to where the job was and get in contact with the reception. If they can't put you through on the phone to somebody to help, then that they can often give you an email address and then they can forward that on to the right person to sort that payment out for you. Another thing you could try and do, although you can expect some resistance to this, is to negotiate in some specific late payment clauses for retention to say that if the retention is unduly held, then the contractor will have to pay you X amount of interest over and above the Bank of England base rate and so on. And those kind of clauses, if you manage to get them in, should deter the contractor from unnecessarily delaying payment or holding on to a certificate once any defects have been remedied. And finally, if you can't get anywhere, refer it to dispute resolution or a service for recovery of commercial debt. One final strategy to make sure you really don't worry about retention is to price it in. Price it in and write it off, particularly the second portion of the retention, because I mean, the first part, as long as you can get to the end of the job, you're pretty much guaranteed to get your hands on. It's the second part that is often the struggling point. Now, I don't believe in holding these things up, but some suppliers that I've seen are just so fed up of it being an issue that they add it onto the contract and don't even worry about it. 
don't bother. Sadly, that's not the right answer, but it might be a pragmatic answer and one that you choose to employ. If there were just that little bit more confidence in payments in the industry, those kind of things just wouldn't be necessary and everybody would save some money. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about today is what happens when you don't get the money that you've been told is due. Now, this really shouldn't be a problem. It shouldn't be a thing at all. But there are situations where notices have been issued, you wait until the payment due date, and then you don't receive a payment. Sometimes it's a bit of a hiccup. Sometimes it's a bit of a longer-winded issue. But to try and deal with this adequately, right, we come up with a one sheet earlier in the episode identifying your contract valuation dates how many days to add on for your due date how many days to add on for your final date for payment and what i would do is introduce another couple of chase points and just make them simple friendly emails to say if you haven't issued your assessment of my account yet this month could i have it as soon as possible please or would you mind sending another copy Usually that'll get your response with your payment notice and watch out for that and watch out for if it hasn't been issued by the date it's supposed to be because technically you're allowed to issue an invoice in default or payment notice in default and be entitled to the full amount of the application and a lot of contractors will get wobbled by that chaser if they know that they haven't issued the payment notice on time. The next thing to do is watch out for the payment date. If you don't receive the funds on day one, issue a notice. You don't have to do this very many times before the contractor gets the message and they take you seriously and they know not to mess around with processing your payment. What you don't do is withdraw from site and say, I'm not sending any labor until I've got this money. You send a clear, simple seven day notice to say, my payment hasn't arrived and if I don't receive the funds in seven days I'm going to withdraw or suspend performance. It doesn't have to be much more than two lines on a piece of paper and you're going to issue this in the same way that you would issue any other notice under the contract. So as we spoke about in an earlier episode if that means in writing to an address then do that. If it means send it to the specified person on the contract via email then do that. And what you're able to do then is to legitimately withdraw from site and you will start causing delay to the contractor's program, which is completely down to them. You're entitled to an extension of time for the period that you're off site because it's a default, a default rather, by the contractor. And this particular process will really put the willies up the contractor, really well. Not many people do it, but it's really effective. And the power in it is that it's pretty much guaranteed to affect their program. And by affecting their program, it's impairing their delivery, it's protracting their period on site, and it's causing them problems. And what you'll find is all of the stops will be pulled out to make sure that money lands with you before the seventh day is up. Because no contractor's QS wants to be the reason why the program got held up, and they then incur LDs from the client and it's their fault. Now I can't believe that for a second will have anything other than the desired effect on the job and your payment. But if there's any further issue, I would then refer to a specialist consultant on the matter. And 
as there likely be a few other options available to you and the earlier you seek advice when you've got a problem such as that the better really for your own sake and the sake of your own pocket so we're about at time for today's episode so i'm going to wrap things up there thanks for tuning into today's show if you like what you've heard and you want to learn more please do find us at www.qs.zone where you can subscribe to our training and support system for like-minded subcontractors. In there you'll find templates, how-to-do videos, interviews and more, and it's less than the price of a cup of coffee per day. You can cancel any time. We're also on your favourite socials at qs.zone. Thanks again. I've been Jacob Austin, and you've been awesome.